Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Philippians chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, it is great for us to have this opportunity to meditate upon the things that you have recorded for us. Encourage us and challenge us for your glory. We pray that our celebration of your table, the Lord's Supper, would be pleasing and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I love hiking. Hiking is probably my favorite thing to do. Most of the time when we go hiking, we follow trails that are you know, already, they're already marked out. In fact, on the trees, you'll find blazes, little strips of paint that have been uh, painted onto the trees so that you don't lose your way. Uh, so you, know, you can kind of freely walk through and, or hike through uh, a section of the woods and have confidence that things are going to be okay. You're, you're going to be able to find your way out because the, the trail is already uh, blazed, the, the, it's already marked out, and so you'll eventually find your way back. If, if you were to, on the other hand, go to a different part of the woods or a different mountain and you start going on a, a trail that's not blazed, you can find yourself in a little bit of trouble. You may, after a couple of hours of, of hiking, find yourself in a situation where you don't really know where you are and how exactly am I going to get myself out of this mess. And you can start to have some, some anxiety or some panic. And many people have found themselves or lost themselves in that kind of a situation where they've, they've been lost in the woods. In fact, some people have perished that way. Others have had very long excursions of being lost and someone finally finding them. These things happen. When you have those markings, it gives you a perspective that I can enjoy everything that I'm going through, everything that I'm experiencing without fear. Well, one of the things that I'd like for us to be able to do, and I believe the Bible does this on a regular course, as we navigate through this life, we face uncertainties. We face difficulties, turmoils, frustrations, things that really weigh down on us. And when we when we don't have a, a trail that's blazed for us, it can create a lot of panic. I want to tell you something that's sure, according to God's Word. The kingdom of God is coming. There are various aspects to God's kingdom that are already, already in existence, but there is a day coming when the kingdom of God will be in full blossom. We see references to this in the book of Acts chapter 3. I'll just mention two phrases. Peter talks about the times of refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord. He's talking about a time when all all the things that have been undone from God's glorious, perfect creation will be redone. And he says in the next verse that it's the time for the restoration of of all things. This day is coming. Peter spoke of it in Acts chapter 3. Paul spoke of it in Romans chapter 8. He said it this way, for the creation, those things that were made, were, was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, listen, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He's talking about a time when everything that is broken 
and dark and, and confusing will be made clear, fixed, light, and corrected. John speaks of this kingdom in Revelation 20 as a time when Jesus will rule the universe with His people. Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream really helps us to understand a very important element of this kingdom. As Nebuchadnezzar is dreaming, he sees this image. You'll remember this image. It's of various types of metal. And and in the midst of this dream, a stone breaks off of the mountain and starts rolling down. And 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 it grows larger and it breaks this image in pieces. And in fact, it it breaks it so much that it's, it's ground into powder so that there's nothing recognizable about it. And that stone that breaks off the mountain turns into a large kingdom that fills the whole earth. One of the things that's important to understand is in Daniel's interpretation of it, these are recorded for you on the screen. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by what? No human hand. The reality is, the kingdom of God in its full bloom will come. It is certain, and it is guaranteed, not by the power of the church, not even by the power of the gospel. It's determined by the power of God Himself. He is an almighty, unchanging, and perfect God. This kingdom is coming. How does one become a member of this kingdom? How can you and I ensure that we are part of this certain and perfect kingdom? Jesus had something to say about that to Nicodemus, you might remember. Jesus told Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. As Jesus explains it further in John 3.16, he says it this way, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. To be a member of this certain kingdom, you and I must be born again. And to be born again, we must trust Jesus Christ. What do I need to believe about Jesus Christ to be born again? You know, we can talk about believing. There are many people that believe Jesus. They know His name. They know Him as a figure. They know Him as a teacher. They even know about Him on the cross. What do I need to know about Jesus or believe about Jesus in order to be certain that I'm born again and part of this certain kingdom that is to come. John 1 speaks about this by saying that we are to be believing in His name or to believe in His name. To believe in His name is to believe everything that He is and claims to be. This is important. This kingdom is coming. It's certain. And we must be a part To be a part of that kingdom, we must believe in the name of Jesus. We need to believe everything He is and everything He claimed to be. So, with that being said, here are some items we must know 
about Jesus. Jesus is the God-man. John chapter 1 makes it abundantly clear that he was in the beginning with God and he was God. A little later in John 1 he says, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In the beginning of that verse, in verse, verse 14, it talks about the fact that he, the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. God in the flesh. We know it in the, that special pronouncement from Isaiah. He shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is not just some special child, not just a good child, not just a great teacher, not just a moral example. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. 600 plus commands in the Mosaic Law. Jesus did not violate any of them throughout the time of his pilgrimage on earth. He perfectly obeyed the law and his Father. Jesus, perfectly holy, laid down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice to pay for our sin. In other words, I'm a sinner, and Jesus said, I will die in your place as a sacrifice for your sin. We need to know this about Jesus. We also need to know that God accepted Jesus' sacrifice as a full payment for the sins of all who believe the gospel. And this is confirmed by God raising him from the dead. This is what we need to know and believe regarding Jesus. We must also believe that we are sinners and that our sin deserves eternal punishment. We must come to understand and believe that Jesus is the only way for us to escape the penalty of our sin and to meet the demands of righteousness before a holy God. In other words, to sum it up, this portion of our discussion, to believe the gospel is to turn from our own way that leads to condemnation and to believe in the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrificial death. Folks, this is the gospel. The gospel is that I'm a sinner, that my sin warrants judgment, that God in His gracious, benevolent love sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to perfectly fulfill the law and thus be a perfect sacrifice for my sin. And God gave His stamp of approval on this whole process when Jesus, the God-man, rose from the grave. Every time, every time the Gospel is preached, and every time the Gospel is embraced, the Kingdom advances. And the Gospel advances. This is the confidence with which Paul lived his life. He faced grave 
and uncertain days. And in the face of those grave and uncertain days, in the midst of them, he rejoiced. Having experienced great turmoil for his gospel ministry, he still rejoices. He expresses uh, his, his difficulty in many places, but he experienced turmoil for gospel ministry, and he, and he speaks of it in 2 Corinthians this way. Far more imprisonments. Far more imprisonments. With countless beatings. And often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes lest less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul's experience was no day at the beach. Paul's experience was filled with trial, temptation, and difficulty. And while he penned the words of our passage this morning, he was imprisoned and potentially even chained to a Roman prison guard. And yet this is what he writes. Philippians 1.12 I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the Gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of The brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. In the face of personal turmoil, Paul was rejoicing. And the reason he was able to rejoice was that regardless of what was going on around him, he knew what was going on in the bigger picture. He wasn't lost in a wilderness without the trail blazed for him. He knew where it was all leading. He didn't understand every step. He hadn't been on that path before. But one thing he did know was where that path ended and what that path was accomplishing. Why, why, why rejoice when things are going poorly? Well, I want for us to look at this in three phases as we look through the text, and it'll just be brief. 
because the text really is very self-explanatory. First of all, our circumstances, our circumstances can be a path toward advancing the gospel. Our circumstances can be a path toward advancing the gospel. Look again what he says in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me? Well, what has happened to you, Paul? Well, we talked about some of it. Imprisonments, beatings, adrift. In this current situation in the book of Philippians, the most likely scenario is he is awaiting trial, having appealed to Caesar, and he is in a a house imprisonment, likely chained to a Roman soldier, Roman guard, and he is there day in and day out. And what is the end of all of this for him? He doesn't know. We see that in the next passage that we'll talk about next week, that he doesn't know whether life or death is his lot at this point. But the one thing he does know is he's there. He is set there for the defense of the gospel, it says in verse 16. Some of the brethren knew he was there, set for the defense of the gospel. Others didn't know. But one thing he did know is what happened to me was not for nothing. What happened to me was for the advance of the gospel. You know, you're not imprisoned, and I'm not imprisoned. And not every trial that we face is is gospel-related. Or is it? I submit to you that every trial we do face is related to the gospel. It might not be because of the gospel, but it should be for the gospel. You have perpetual pain. You have perpetual challenges. You have perpetual health issues. You have perpetual uh, emotional challenges. You have perpetual relational issues. Whatever these things are, your life is supposed to be set for the gospel. And, and the way that God enables you through those challenges can display for those around you the, the glories of the gospel. And people can be set free. How did the gospel advance in this context? Well, in verse 13, it gives us a little insight. So that it became known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The imperial guard, F.F. Um, F. Bruce calls them the emperor's bodyguard. So in other words, you get the secret service there. Right? They're, the, they're the ones that are, that are guarding certain key members. Well, and this, this one is, is now in Paul's presence. Paul is in this one's presence. And, and guess what? It's not the same one all day long every day. It shifts. And so, day in and day out, what are they doing with Paul? What is Paul doing every day? He's, it's not like he's playing on his Nintendo He's not reading the funnies or the sports page. He can't whip out his iPhone and check out the weather. Paul has only one purpose as he sits there awaiting trial. It's all about the gospel. And day in and day out, the imperial guard is hearing that Jesus is God in the flesh 
that Jesus laid down his life to bear the sin of mankind. That Jesus can be your Savior day in and day out. Why? Because Paul, governed by God's grace and mercy and his spirit, God's spirit, knew he was there not for no reason. He was there for the gospel. And he was there for Christ. And so these, these guards were getting the gospel. Whether they believed the gospel or not is not in view. The gospel is advancing. The gospel advances every time the gospel is preached. Not only were the imperial guards recognizing this, there was also all the rest. Well, there are other people in this situation, including all of those that are involved in the legal system, those that are preparing for this defense, those that are, that are going to counter Paul's claims. He's here for Christ. There's no, other, there's no other charges against him. This is all about Christ. Our circumstances can be a path toward advancing the gospel. I don't know your situation. I don't know what you're going through. I can tell you this. You and I, if we've been redeemed, our circumstances... Good, bad, or mediocre. They should all be for the gospel. The gospel is advancing. This is a reason for rejoicing. Secondly, our actions, our actions are a path toward advancing the gospel. I just want to just key in on one short phrase at the end of verse 13 that my imprisonment, that's a clause, that my imprisonment is for Christ. My imprisonment is for Christ. Hold your hand here. We're going to come right back. I want to turn to two passages of Scripture, but we've, we've got to come right back because we, we need to finish this and celebrate the Lord's table together. First Peter chapter 2. My imprisonment is for Christ. And the reason that people knew that his imprisonment was for Christ was because his life was all about was all about the gospel. He's not there for bad behavior. Peter speaks about our responsibility as those who have been called by God's grace. He says in verse 11, verses 11 and 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2, "Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, what? Honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when? On the day of visitation, when they meet Him. That they may turn from scoffers to praisers. How? Through good, proper action. Our actions lead toward advancing the gospel. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 now. Paul was not in prison because of poor actions, because of a bad, bad behavior, and he wasn't there because he was, was uh, seeking personal gain. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he gives this testimony beginning in verse 2. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. 
But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. He wasn't there preaching for himself, for his own personal gain, for his own personal benefit. Why does someone proclaim the gospel? I heard that. For the glory of God. That is our first, second, and third objective. If you have other objectives, your objectives are tainted ahead of that. If you have other objectives ahead of that, your objectives are tainted. There are other objectives, right? Because we care about the people that we're preaching the gospel to. Because we know they need it. Because we know that they need to hear that Jesus died for sinners like us. Our actions are a path toward advancing the gospel. Head back to Philippians chapter 1 and we will conclude. The third reason for rejoicing, even in difficult circumstances, is our influence on others is a path toward advancing the gospel. Our influence on others is a path toward advancing the gospel. Look again at verse 14 now. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, what's the next three words? What are the next three words? By my imprisonment. Someone became confident to preach the word by someone else's imprisonment. Now that, that seems a little backward, doesn't it? Like if I see someone preaching the gospel and they go to jail, that might make me say, well, maybe I ought not speak. No. He's led the way saying there's a bigger objective than my personal circumstances and my personal life. There's a bigger objective and it is the certain kingdom of God. Not only that, while Paul awaits trial, there is some possibility that the legal system will say that is permissible. And so the people, while Paul is the head of this this hunt, the one who is being persecuted in this process, others are free then to proclaim. So here we are, because of Paul's willingness to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, he influenced others, both positively motived and negatively motivated. He says in verse 14 again, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to add affliction or to afflict me in my imprisonment. There's mixed emotions among these, or mixed motives among these preachers. Some envy and rivalry, selfish ambition, while others are doing it out of goodwill and love. For Paul, for Paul, he, he, didn't, he wasn't concerned as much about what produced the preaching of the gospel as much as 
what? The preaching of the gospel, which is why we have verse 18. Why then, or what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense for wrong purposes, or in truth, sincerely, God or Christ is proclaimed. And in that proclamation of Christ, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. What is the reason for his rejoicing? The proclamation of Christ. Paul knows the power of the gospel. In Romans 1.16, the Bible says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was all about the advance of the gospel. If that meant his own personal circumstances had to be curtailed and had to be negative, the gospel is advancing. His demonstration of that gospel ministry was one that displayed actions that were worthy of the gospel. The gospel was advancing because of gospel action. And you know what? In addition to the advance of the gospel in the prison system and in the legal system, and in addition to people all around knowing that he was there for the case, for the cause of Christ, now we have others heralding the gospel all around that region because they see the worth of the gospel. Some, others for other reasons. And Paul says, none of, none of the motivation is the issue. Here's what matters. Christ is proclaimed. And the proclamation of Christ is an advancement of the gospel, which is an advancement of the kingdom. And the kingdom is certain. There is no question that that kingdom is coming. What might be in question is whether you're part of that kingdom or not. Have you trusted Christ? We preach the gospel. We must know what the gospel is so we can proclaim it soundly and faithfully and fruitfully. Are you a recipient? Are you one who has embraced the gospel? Are you part of this kingdom having been born again by Jesus Christ? The gospel is advancing. And in this, folks, we rejoice.